0: Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. So this week we'll be wrapping up our final sermon on our series entitled The Far Country, um, where we talk about um, how God has called us to live here in this place on earth that is not our home, and has called us to live For our home, which is in heaven, but still live in this tension of living here and blessing our neighbors and serving our neighbors. And then next week, we're going to start our series on mission where it's going to be a four-week series. We're going to start with the first message here and then two at Park Street, and then we'll come back here to wrap up that series on mission. And then we'll be going into a series the Holy Spirit, and that will take us through Advent and Christmas in the new year. And so just so you guys know, kind of where we'll be going um, in the next kind of quarter is that we'll be talking about mission, and then we'll be talking about um, how the Holy Spirit empowers us to um, accomplish that mission that he has put us on. And so uh, this morning, as we continue into our Far Country series, I've got a question for you guys. And the question is, is what are you willing to risk personal comfort and safety for? What are you willing to risk personal comfort and safety for? Um, is it a family member in danger? I think of Taken, the movie Taken. His daughter is taken from her, and the, the, the father risks all types of personal comfort and safety to go get her back. Um, or maybe just a family member that's in need, take a long trip to go visit them because they're in need. Um, do you risk personal comfort and safety um, for your reputation your reputation when you go and stand up for somebody that's being mistreated if you see someone being mistreated publicly, do you, do you speak up? Do you put your neck out there? are you able to get past that level of awkward anxiety and discomfort when just kind of everyone's looking around like, oh, is that, is that really happening? Like, am I, am I really seeing this, you know? And you, and you think someone should, someone should say something, and you're kind of wondering, like, should that someone be me? Um, and sometimes we, we walk away, but sometimes sometimes we risk that, and we step into that. And so are you willing to do that? What about your job? What if you were asked to do something unethical by your boss to keep your job, whether it's a safety standard or... Uh, you know, to cheat the books, you know, your boss is just saying, hey, I need you to do this thing, you know, you know, it might risk promotion, it might risk your employment, would you be willing to stick up and risk yourself to to do the right thing? The question this morning is, what is more comfortable breaking our conscience and having our conscience broken for a moment or (laughs) taking a true stand for what is right and true, which is more comfortable for us. And I say taking a stand for what is right and true, because I believe that taking a stand for what is right and true requires some type of action. Um, Standing up for what is right and true is not always just posting somewhere on social media and saying, hey, read this thing, it's true, and you should probably agree with it. Um, And if you don't, then we're just not going to be friends anymore. Um, That's probably not standing up for what is right and true. I believe that what staying up for right and true requires conversation, it requires relationship, it requires dialogue, and it requires seeing each other face to face. It requires doing the tough thing and sometimes saying the tough thing face to face. It might require talking to the boss and saying, no, I'm not going to do that thing that you asked me because of these things. It might require talking to your friend that you have a severe disagreement about and be like, hey, we're not seeing eye to eye on these things. And and I would I'd like to bring reconciliation. I'd like to, for there to be understanding and forgiveness brought to this relationship. It requires doing the hard thing of sitting down and actually being present with one another. And so the question is this morning, which is more powerful in your life, your conviction or your comfort? Your conviction to do what is right and what is true or your comfort to say actually what is true and was right might risk, risk, risk me something, and so I'm actually just going to choose comfort instead. This morning we're going to look at two guys named Peter and John in the book of Acts. And so if you guys want to get to Acts, you're going to be in Acts chapter four, and while you're turning there, just a little bit of review of this far country series. So we started the series with Abraham. And Abraham was called by God to leave his homeland, to leave the land of his fathers, everything that he knew. And he was called to leave his possessions behind. He was called to leave his position. He was the oldest son in his family. And with that came an incredible position of responsibility. And he leaves that. He leaves his dreams of what his future in his father's homeland could be like. And he also leaves the relationships of his family. And so God calls him to a new land. He says, I'm going to make a new family for you. I'm going to make a nation out of you. And so Abraham goes and he follows God, leaving all of that behind. And sometimes God calls us to do the same, to leave relationships, to leave possessions, to leave position, to leave hopes and dreams behind, to go do this thing that's far bigger that God has for us to do. Then we looked at Moses, and we saw that God called Moses to leave Egypt and to go. To leave Egypt and to go. And as you are going to this place that God has called you to do, to rest. To rest in that. But we were never designed to work all the time, but we need to take time to rest and connect with God and to connect with the the family and the relationships that God has put around us. Then we looked at Daniel and Jeremiah and how they were in exile and how they (coughs) bought homes and planted gardens and started families and lived in this place where their enemies surrounded them, but yet they lived in a way that pointed back to God that back to the true God. And so we were encouraged by that as we are in this place where we're in a place that is hostile towards our God and it's how we can live as a chosen people, how we can live as a called out people in this world. And we were encouraged by Daniel and Jeremiah. And then last week we looked at Jesus. We looked at Jesus and how Jesus was a king and how Jesus is the king and how he left his throne and became a sojourner. He became a traveler here on this earth for the sole purpose that other sojourners like you and I would be able to have a home in heaven, that he would be able to lead us home. So Jesus comes down from heaven, shows us the way, becomes the way to heaven for us, and we are able to accept him and follow him to our true home that is in heaven. And then today, we are at Peter and John. And Peter and John were two of Jesus' disciples. And when Jesus was, was... Crucified, they were terrified. And they went and they hid. And Peter denied Jesus three times. And they were scared. But then Jesus is resurrected. And the Holy Spirit comes and he fills them with power. And these two guys that were once cowards for Christ become incredible (coughs) missionaries for Christ, living it out in a world that's still very hostile against Christ. Christ. And so in Peter and John, what we have is we have two guys who receive the spirit of the far country. They receive the spirit of heaven that is from this far country for the purpose of leading others towards the far country with them. And that's our job. That's what God has called us to do. Jesus came as a sojourner so that sojourners might be able to be led home. And as we are on our way home, as we're being led by Christ home, we are also given this invitation to boldly invite others onto that journey home as we continue to live and breathe and set our roots here where God has us. And so this is where we're going to be this morning in the book of Acts and just a little bit of context. Jesus is killed. Jesus has risen. He's come back to life and he commissions the disciples to go to the ends of the earth. Go and be my witness to what you've seen and heard. You've seen me come back to life. You've heard the message that That I've taught. You've heard about my kingdom and how I've brought it to come. And so I want you to go and bear witness to that. I want you to go and proclaim that you've seen the Son of God resurrected and that his kingdom has come. And then he ascends into heaven. He sits down at the right hand of God and the Spirit comes down then upon the people and people are filled with power and confidence that they've never had before. Like I said, Peter was terrified at the crucifixion, so much so that he denies Jesus to a little girl. He can't even stand up to a little girl and say, yes, I know that man. He denies Jesus to a little girl. He's that afraid. But here, in Acts, as soon as he receives the power of the Holy Spirit, guess what Peter starts doing? He begins preaching to the crowds, and people hear about Jesus, and they believe it. They believe it. They hear, they believe, they receive, and this little band of Christians that started off as 12 guys hiding out in a room is now growing to the thousands. 3,000 were added on that first day that Peter started to open his mouth with boldness and confidence because of the Holy Spirit moving through him. And they start doing life together. They they start forming this community. And they start serving one another, start sharing one another. And I, I just want to say, being a part of this community here at Damascus Road, especially here on our West Campus, it's been such a blessing to see how we live this out how we share with one another the gifts that God has given and the way that this community has been such a blessing how it points people towards God and God's generous nature and so i just want to say there's we do a really good job of this and i and i want to bring attention to it because it, it's a blessing it's a blessing to one another and it's a it's a blessing that i've personally received from you guys it's so refreshing to be in a church that is serving one another and i'm looking forward to being able to take this energy that we have and move it towards the outer community. And so we, we can begin start having conversations about maybe some of the elementary schools, maybe some of the needs that we have in the city of Verona. So I'm looking forward to beginning some of those conversations, that we can start doing this, this going that Jesus has called us to do, to bring other people in, to bring other people and show them, hey, come travel to the kingdom with me. And so they start doing life together. They start praying for one another, and they start holding each other accountable. It sounds a little bit like our discipleship groups. And so I encourage you, if you're not in a discipleship group, this is what we do. We pray for one another. We hold each other accountable. We continue to grow in the Word that God has given us through His Son. And as, as the people grow and as the Spirit continues to come, they continue to grow in power and influence, so much so that John... And Peter are walking across, walking to the temple to pray one day. And there's a paralyzed man on their way to the temple. And he's been paralyzed since birth. Then he asks Peter and John for money. He's like, hey, you guys have some change? We see this in Madison if you're at the stoplights. People asking for money because they're homeless. And Peter and John say, hey, we, we actually, we don't have anything. We don't have anything. But, but what I can offer you is, is how would you like to walk? How would you like to walk? And they pray over him and the, and the man is able to be healed. The Holy Spirit comes and he heals the man. And he begins walking. And he begins jumping up and down, excited for what God has done for him, this gift that he's been given. I mean, can you imagine never being able to walk and then someday being able to walk just because God has come and touched you? And so he begins telling everyone around him of this miracle. And here, Peter sees this as an incredible opportunity to share about the message of Jesus. So he stands up and he starts preaching. He's like, look, this man that was crippled, that you know have been crippled, that you've passed every day and probably given a couple silver coins to, he's been healed. And he hasn't been healed by anything that we've done, but he's been healed by what Jesus has done and by the power of his Holy Spirit. And this disturbance becomes so loud and so great outside the temple that the religious leaders come out to it and they're like, what is going on? This is chaos. There should be order. There should be quiet. This is the holy place. There's no room for this jumping and shouting and celebration. And so they're so annoyed that they have Jesus, not Jesus, they have Peter and John arrested and they're put into jail. And they stay in jail for the night to calm things down, to say, we'll, we'll address this issue tomorrow. And if you're Peter and John, you've got to be wondering, like, What's going to happen to us? Because they're in jail. And guess who imprisoned them? The same people that crucified Jesus. So the same people that Peter was afraid of when Jesus was dying, Peter is now under their arrest. And so Peter's got to be wondering what is going to happen. But this time, the next day, when he's brought in front of the religious leaders, a new sense of boldness comes over him. Instead of fear and trepidation and denial of saying, no, 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 that didn't happen yesterday, he comes with boldness and with strength. And the Holy Spirit empowers him to look at these authorities, these authorities that killed Jesus, with a new perspective. And that perspective is that if these authorities, even though they were able to kill Jesus, Jesus actually was able to conquer those authorities by coming back to life by reigning over them. And so Peter and John know at this time, Jesus is the authority. And so they have little fear for what these religious leaders are going to do, even if it was going to cost them their very life, because they had their hope in Christ. They had their hope that one day we will be resurrected again, and that we will be united with our Christ. I mean, that's an incredible shift in perspective that happens almost instantaneously when he receives the power of the Holy Spirit. And so this is where I want to pick up this morning. We're going to read a large section of Acts. It's going to be verses 1 through 22. And then what I want to do is focus on verses 13 through 22. So I kind of summarized a little bit what happened in the beginning of this chapter. But I wanted us to read it. I want us to hear from the Word. <clears throat> and so if you guys would open your Bibles and just kind of silently read along with me. And we'll hear the story of Peter and John representing Christ so as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching and proclaiming in the Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And they arrested them, and they put them into custody for the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of men that came to about 5,000 The next day there were rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Ananias the high priest and (laughs) Sapphias and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, By what means has this man been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised by the dead, by this man is standing well before you. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For a notable sign has been performed through them, and it's evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let's warn them to speak no more. Let let them speak no more to anyone in this name. So he called them back and charged them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, saying, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. They're following that commission. That Jesus gave them. Go and be a witness to what you've seen and heard. Here, Peter and John are saying, we can't help but do that. And when they had <coughs> further threatened them, they then let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man <coughs> on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Let us pray. Dear Lord God, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this time that we have to come together and worship you in your great goodness. That you are bringing heaven to earth. That there are glimpses of this far country that you are king and ruler over, breaking through. And God, that you have come and taken up residence inside of our hearts. That you have tabernacled yourself there and that we can go in boldness and strength to testify to what we have seen and heard. And so God, give us that strength this morning. God, transform us into your likeness that we might continue to bring your country here into this country where you've had us here to do your good works. In your name we pray. Amen. So this morning I'm going to make three observations and what those observations are going to be some application points. And so the first observation is that in verse 13 is that the the religious leaders see Peter and John as uneducated in common. When they bring Peter and John before them, they don't get what they're expecting. They see Peter and John, they're like, oh, these are just uneducated common men. We'll just deal with them really easily. We'll just say some high legal jargon and it'll go over their head and you know, we'll, we'll get this taken care of right away. But instead, Peter is bold and he is, and he is humble. And this throws the religious leaders in a way that they never expected. And when they say that, they think that, that perceived... Peter and John, to be uneducated and common. What they mean by that is that they had no technical education in the law. In Jewish time, what would happen is that as a youth, you'd begin to study the law. And that as you grew up, there would have to be this decision to be made whether or not to go into the trade of your family or to continue study in the law. And both John and Peter are fishermen, and so they continued in the trade of their family. And so, I mean, at probably a very early age, seven, eight, maybe even younger, I mean, they, they were out on a boat fishing. They were not sitting in some room studying the Torah, studying the law. Where the Pharisees, these religious rulers, they chose the other track. When they were seven or eight, they were memorizing the entire Old Testament. By the time that they were a teenager, they had the entire Old Testament memorized. And they would have teachers where they would, they would study the very nuances of the law. And so they, they saw these men they're like no education. And then they are common in the sense that they had no specific qualification outside of just being fishermen. And so they were they were professionals. They're professional fishermen. But in the eyes of these religious rulers, they're just these uncommon, uneducated men. And the council is dumbfounded by Peter's boldness because they think that spiritual authority comes from formal education and attaining the right religious qualifications, right? Like, the way that you're most spiritual is by how much you know. You know, can you pass this quiz of Torah information and knowledge? Okay, you meet the standards, you are deemed most spiritual. You are deemed to be most spiritual. And here, Peter and John, these common guys, come walking in, and they perform a sign that is clearly miraculous, that clearly has come from God, and they don't know what to do about it. It wrecks their entire paradigm of how the world and how spirituality is supposed to work. They tried to put God in a box, and God is just obliterating that for them. And so where does Peter and John get their boldness? It's from the Holy Spirit. Like we said before, Peter and John, without the Holy Spirit, they're a wreck. They're terrified. They're afraid. They're running for their lives. Holy Spirit comes and there's this immediate transformation that takes place and so the application then from this observation of Peter and John being un being common and uneducated is that you don't need a bible college degree to share Jesus with somebody you don't need to be on staff at a church to share Jesus with somebody you don't have to have a ministry that you're in charge of you don't have to run a nonprofit to share Jesus with your family with your coworkers with people in the neighborhood. God has given his power most directly, in this case in Acts, to the uneducated and the common people. When the Holy Spirit comes, you don't see it falling on the temple and the high priests, the people that you would expect the Holy Spirit coming, falling down on and firing up on. Instead, he chooses this group of common and fairly uneducated people to be able to go and as we read this morning, the Spirit, comes and the Spirit has given us every good gift. And so the Spirit enables us with everything that we need. We already have it, and it's living inside of us. And so we need to be able to tap into that. When the Holy Spirit is calling us to be bold, it's calling us to step out and share Christ with someone, we need to be able to, to kind of get over our fear and, and risk something, get over our comfort and be able to go, and do that. And we're going to talk about how we do that here in a little bit. Because, you know, if you're sitting here thinking that you need a Bible degree or a seminary degree, you know, I'm going to tell you, you're a little bit mistaken in the sense that sometimes having a Bible degree or seminary degree, what happens is that uh, you're given a bunch of tools to read Scripture with, but then you start relying on those tools instead of the Holy Spirit to read Scripture with. And so you might be able, you know, you might be the best you know, scholar to be able to dissect the text and make all these observations. But unless it's being spirit-led, it's not going to produce any type of fruit. And what often happens sometimes in education, and as people become more and more educated, there's this pride that says, well, I can get to God without God with these tools that I have acquired. And that kind of runs against the grain of the gospel because the gospel is all about receiving what I can't receive and receiving something that I can never attain, and acknowledging my limitations. And so what we should be experiencing is the same type of humbled spirit and boldness that Peter and John have, this boldness to be able to go and humbly proclaim Christ. Now, sometimes when we talk about the word boldness, we get a little com- uncomfortable, right? I mean, can we just be honest? Like, we, like when we talk about bold people, um, they kind of rub us, The wrong way. Um, We don't necessarily love bold and flamboyant people. And I think because a lot of times in our culture, the way that we've kind of translated bold means that I'm just going to talk louder than you. I'm going to talk over you and I'm going to keep talking until you stop talking and start listening to me. And we think that that's boldness. And I'm here to tell you that that's not boldness. That's just being rude and unpolite and ungraceful and not being a good steward of what God has given us. And so what boldness really is is this ability to stand up for truth with humility. And it can still be uncomfortable. It can still make us squirm because really in reality when we talk about that first type of boldness when someone's just steamrolling somebody else what happens is that like everyone else in the room starts to squirm, right? But the person that's being bold, the person being bold, he's just here it is, here it is, and everyone else is like, I'm getting, I'm getting really uncomfortable. Like, are you seeing this happen? And then <laughs> the boldness that I'm talking about is somewhat, is kind of actually the opposite, is that the boldness that often is required by the Holy Spirit is that it's going to make us squirm a little bit to go do it. We're going to be like, man, I don't, I don't know if I really want to do that. But when you stand up and you do it, everyone else is actually refreshed. They're like, oh, man, I'm so glad somebody did something. I'm so glad that somebody stepped in and said something. I'm so glad that, that this conflict is going to be able to be resolved. And so this boldness that comes from the Holy Spirit should not make other people squirm, but don't be surprised if it makes you squirm at first. One example is that uh, when I first moved to Madison, I shopped uh, at Walmart and uh, at the Walmart in, in, uh, in uh, Monona, and they've got this parking garage, so it's kind of dark. It's kind of eerie, like... Um, I don't really love it down there, but I would I'd park in there and I was coming back with my groceries and uh, this couple was having a, a vivid verbal argument. So much so that the male of the relationship said, you guys, you and this child, I mean, they had a child probably a little bit bigger than Benjamin. They're like, you guys are going to have to walk home. And it's snowing. It's snowing outside. It's, it's the December, January winter of Madison. He's like, you guys are going to have to walk. And he's just sitting in his truck right beside me. He's steaming. And I'm, I'm sitting there in my car, still trying to figure out, like, all right, what what, what should I do with what I just saw? And I, I started beginning to squirm. And so I rolled down my window. And I was like, hey, man. He's like, what? I'm like, do those guys need a ride home? He's like, what are you talking about? I was like, well, I heard that you're not giving him a ride home. He's like, that's none of your business. I'm like, yeah, it is. He, that's a small child without a coat on right now. And you're going to make him walk in the snow? He's like, that's none of your business. And he's like, and no, they don't need a ride. I'm going to give them a ride. He's like, I just need a moment. I was like, okay. I was like, but they're heading towards the snow. And so you, you need to, like, get over your moment here. He's like, Okay. And goes, picks him up, you know. I didn't know what to do in that situation. Did I handle it right? I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't have talked to the guy. Maybe I should have went and, like, just taken the parents. Maybe that would have caused a greater escalation. I don't know. But, like, I was sitting there squirming. And I think that there was some type of peace that came from that. The guy was able to see the foolishness of his actions and was at least able to give this woman and his child a ride home so they didn't have to walk home in the snow. And so there are a number of public and even private places where the Holy Spirit can be making you squirm a little bit and be like, man, and when you step in, it's supposed to bring peace to everyone else around you. That's the boldness that we're talking about, not the boldness that everyone's fine and you come in and you make everybody else uncomfortable. That's, that's not the boldness that we're talking about. And oftentimes we, we try and shy away from power and authority. Um... So these words, power and authority and the Holy Spirit, like, also kind of make us uncomfortable because we don't love the ideas of power and authority because we've seen power and authority abused. We've seen it abused at the local level. We've seen it abused at the national level. We've even seen it abused maybe in our own households. And so we don't love these words, power and authority, and especially when the church is like, yes, you should actually walk out power and authority. And, you know, that can also make us kind of uncomfortable. And so the reality is that this power and authority that comes from the Holy Spirit, we should ought to always be using it for good. And a good test to know is that if you are walking in the power and authority of the Holy Spirit, is do your actions yield the fruit of the Spirit? Do your actions, when you walk in the authority and the power of the Holy Spirit, do they yield love? Do they yield joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness? Do they yield those things? Because if your power and authority from the Holy Spirit is not accomplishing those things, then you are not using the power of the Holy Spirit properly. That's actually your power and your authority. And you need to check your heart and repent and confess where you have a u- abused power in the Holy Spirit in the name of the Holy Spirit. And there's so many abuses of this. Like, well, well, God told me so. Well, if God told you so and you executed it properly, there should be peace, there should be patience, there should be understanding, there should be life that's given instead of life taken. And so we have to begin to walk in the Spirit well. We should be walking in the Spirit in this... The Spirit should move us to end oppression and bless others instead of add oppression and curse others. So that's the kind of the word on this, on walking in boldness and how we as uneducated and common people can be empowered by the Holy Spirit to accomplish great things for this far country kingdom that we are heading to. The second observation is that seeing is believing. Seeing is believing, right? I mean, Peter's words have some effect on the religious leaders. But the thing that speaks the loudest is that there's a crippled man that's not walking. And he's standing right in front of them. He's standing right in front of them. It says, but seeing the man who is healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. And this is where, like, you know, it's one thing to say something on Facebook. It's something completely another thing to make a real impact into a real person's life where you can say there in that place, look, there was a person that was crippled, and now they're walking. There was a person that had no food, and now they have food. There was a person that was sick, and now they have medicine to be healed. There was a person that (laughs) wasn't able to pay their bills, and now they've paid their bills. Like There's something that speaks highly of action where people are going to say, I can't oppose that. You're right. You took a situation that was bad and made it better. And you did it in the name of your God. There's really, there's not a whole lot to argue with there. And so our culture responds most aptly when people back up their words with action. When people back up their words with action. Jesus brings about major transformations into people's lives. Jesus should bring major transformations into our lives. Like we said, we see Peter. Peter is transformed from this kind of wimp coward to this bold preacher overnight. And the question that I have for us is, how has Jesus transformed us? And how are we able to go and be a true representation of Christ to other people? Because seeing is believing. If people knew you to be one person, and now you've been transformed into another person. That's going to speak volumes. Like I once was this, but now I'm this. And why, well, why, why are you this now? Well, because of Christ. And I want to make differences in other people's lives. And so kind of the application to this observation of seeing is believing, the application is how has Jesus changed you? And how is Jesus wanting to continue to change you? Because Jesus is always constantly working at transforming our lives just a little bit more into his likeness each and every day. And so how has your family changed because of Jesus? How has Jesus changed your family? How has Jesus changed the way that you view your neighbors? And maybe it's going to require you to do some boldness, some stuff that makes you squirm, but as you go over there and you bring your neighbors a gift and you say hi and you begin to develop a relationship, people are blessed. People are encouraged. People can come to know Who Christ is? How is God changing you you in your work environment? Not how is Jesus changing your boss in your work environment, but how is Jesus changing you in relationship to your boss in your work environment? Our entire lives should be in every facet transformed by Christ living inside of us. And I think that we forget that a lot, that Christ is in us. Because we live in a world that says, Hey, what's true for you is true for is is good for you, you know. And you think, well, well, God's present, kind of, but He doesn't feel really present right now. He hasn't felt present lately, so I must just be on my own. And so I'm just going to do whatever I want. And we forget that, that God is in us and the Holy Spirit is always talking to us, always seeking to transform us. The reality is that Christ makes us uncomfortable. He makes us uncomfortable in our own spirit when he's trying to correct us and move us into the way of his will. He makes these religious leaders uncomfortable because, like I said before, he offers righteousness through grace. He offers righteousness through grace, not righteousness before works. And that's what these guys thought. They thought, well, I'm righteous by everything that I do. And Jesus comes and says, no, you're righteous by what I do. And you just get to receive that. And so that's kind of the observation, seeing is believing. And the question and application is, how has Jesus changed you? How is Jesus wanting to transform you? And maybe we need to take some time and reflect this week around that question. Is How is Jesus, you know, ask him, Jesus, where do you want to grow me? Where do you want to, to move me? How do you want to, what do you want to save me from? And then you allow him to do that. The final observation, application, now this one's a little bit longer, so I don't you think, oh man, he's almost done. <laughs> yeah. But this final one is, I think it's, it's really important, and it kind of ties into this other one of how Jesus has changed you. But the observation is um, that there is opposition to Jesus, and there is opposition to this far country, and that Jesus is this threat to religious leaders, and these religious leaders don't even call Jesus by name. I don't know if you notice this in the text, but they just say, stop teaching in, in that name. They're, they're not able to, to even come to say, stop teaching in the name of Jesus. They're just like, hey, stop teaching in that name. They don't even want to speak it. And Peter and John are like, okay, why? And they're like, well, just, just don't. Well, why? Well, just, just don't. We, we don't. We don't want you to do that. Peter and John are like, okay, uh, we're, we're not going to stop. And it's a threat to the Pharisees because they've risen to the top and they've amassed power by climbing their political and self religious ladder. And Jesus comes along and he tells these religious leaders that the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are like children. And unless you become like one of them, you're not coming. And those are difficult words for people to receive who have spent their entire life building their own kingdoms. And I think at the end of the day, if we're all honest, we're all our own kingdoms builders. We all have a kingdom that we are building, that we would like to see come to fruition. And Jesus says, throw that kingdom away and come take hold of this kingdom that I am building for you. And that's a threat. That's a threat to our kingdom that we've invested a lot of time and a lot of energy towards, that in our kingdoms can look really good. In in our kingdom, we can have a lot of power, and we can have a lot of influence, and we can get stuff done in our kingdom. And we can even have a couple royal subjects in our kingdom that serve us, that listen to what we do, that we've been able to manipulate into power, So giving up our kingdom can be very difficult to take hold of this kingdom that Jesus has come to give us. And so when Jesus says that you need to become like a little child, it's a a really refreshing word, especially if you find yourself dancing, trying to hold your kingdom together. Because what Jesus is saying by saying, become little children, enter my kingdom, he's saying that it's not about how far up the ladder you've climbed. Because let's be honest, ladder climbing is exhausting. I don't know if you've ever done a Stairmaster at the gym. but so I, I get to like level 13 and I'm just like, I've only gone 13 flights. It's exhausting. It's exhausting climbing the ladder. He's saying it's not about the ladder. It's not about the name that you've made for yourself, but rather it's, it's about depending on the grace that I've freely given you, depending upon this grace that I've given you through my son. And so at the end of the day, it's really easy for a child to accept God's undeserving grace. But for anyone who has climbed the ladder, who is climbing the ladder, who has the ladder as their God, who's put in the time, who's put in the blood, the sweat, and the tears, it's really a slap in the face. It's really a slap in the face to say, you know, all those years that you've committed to it, maybe you've committed an entire lifetime, you know, 40 years to this this kingdom of yours that you're building. And Jesus says, yeah, that's, that's all going down. And if you put your hope and your trust and everything that you got for 40 years in that kingdom, that's offensive. And that can be very, very difficult to receive. But Jesus is saying, look, come and take this kingdom. It's a slap in the face because those who have built their kingdoms feel more righteous than other people they feel educated and uncommon and they begin to look people like other people and say words like you're uneducated and you are common and when the god of the universe says hey you know that ed- uneducated and common person that you think of guess what they're they're coming into my kingdom and they're offended they're like him he he gets in and jesus says yeah him he says guess what he says this to the pharisees One of my favorite lines of all the Bible, he says to the Pharisees, he says, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom before you. And I love it because it wakes me up. It rattles me because I'm like a Pharisee at many times and have judged other people like the Pharisees have judged. And that verse wakes me up every time to the amazing grace of our God and the ways that he wants to transform lives, even the tax collectors and the prostitutes of this world, the people that we see as most worthless. He's saying those are the ones that I've come to add the greatest value and worth towards. Those who I have nothing, I've come to give everything. And so when the tax collectors and the Pharisees say, stop speaking in this name, they're saying, stop undercutting our authority that we've worked so hard to achieve. They're like, you know this authority that we've got? We've worked really hard to get Stop undercutting us with the authority of Jesus. They don't like their authority being publicly challenged, but there's nothing they could do about it because the proof was standing right in front of them. Literally, standing right in front of them. And they couldn't deny it. And they said, but in order that it may spread no further among these people, they're like, let's warn them not to speak in no other name. They wanted to stop all of Jesus' talk. They wanted to stop the message of the gospel spreading. They wanted to stop the good news that everyone is equally undeserving of God, deserving punishment for sin, and yet everyone is capable of receiving eternal life through the love of Jesus on the cross. They wanted to put an end to that, and they wanted to keep their reign intact. And so that's the observation. The application is this. The application is that there is... in opposition to you receiving the gospel. There's opposition woven into our hearts, woven into our beings, that says, I want to continue to build my kingdom. That I don't want to receive the free grace that Jesus has given us. There's opposition to becoming a disciple of Jesus and entering the far country. I mean, our, th- our culture thrives on this kind of self-made per- person. Look what I did. Look at my list of accomplishments. Look at my resume. And I'll say this over and over again. I've never been to a funeral once where they like whipped out the resume and started listing everything that they've accomplished. So I ask, what are you living for? Are you living for the resume or are you living for the eulogy? And it's even bigger than that. Are you living for the eulogy or are you living for the kingdom of God? that says that this life will never end. The difficulty is that our current worldview has subtly, in very subtle ways, become so pluralistic that I have very many well-meaning Christians that have allowed kind of pluralistic worldviews to come into their mind. And so I was talking to a Christian the other day, and I heard them uh, start talking about how uh, they view their spirituality in a way of this native american proverb of there being two wolves living inside of us. So I don't know if you're familiar with this proverb or not, but the proverb is that there are two wolves. There's a good wolf and a bad wolf, and if you whichever wolf you feed more is the wolf that will grow strong and win and conquer. And so the moral of the parable is you feed the good wolf good things and the bad wolf will eventually be conquered by the good wolf and you'll be a good person and you'll like kind of achieve this righteousness. And this christian person was just like, "Yep." You know it's it's kind of like that, you know I think, and I'm just like, we need time out, like this is this is actually against the gospel, because in feeding the good wolf or the bad wolf, they're saying that there's something that we can achieve that I am capable of feeding this good wolf good things, and that eventually I can overcome evil in my life, and I can be a good person. But I don't know about you. But if you think about this good wolf, bad wolf analogy, no matter how much I try and feed the good wolf in my life, that bad wolf will just, he won't die. He keeps coming back. He never gets tired. He never gets weak. And so what we don't need is a theology that says, hey, feed the good wolf instead of the bad wolf. What we need is actually somebody to come and kill the bad wolf. And that's what Jesus has done, and that's what the gospel is about, is that Jesus has come to save us from this bad wolf that is destroying our lives and taking our life from us. This is the gospel. It's not about good, bad. It's that Jesus has come, and he has conquered, and he has established his kingdom, and he has saved us from the thing that is stealing our life away. This is the gospel that we need to receive, but there's opposition to it, and we need to begin to recognize it. We need to be able to go back and think, how do I believe the gospel? How do I understand it? Am I believing more of this two-wolf system? Because that's how 99% of the rest of the world views religion. It's about good versus bad, good versus evil, and which side of, is that I'm going to be on. Christianity is the only one that says that God loved his people so much that he would send his son to come and die in their place for them to take the wrath and punishment in their place and give them life instead. Christianity is the only one that says that I've come to actually save you from anything. And so which one are we living in? The second one is that there's opposition not only to us receiving the gospel, but there's opposition to us sharing the gospel. We live in a pluralistic society. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. Let's just agree on that and like we'll live together and we'll, and we'll call it good. Because I mean, whatever's good for you is good for you. And whatever's good for me is good for me. But the reality is, and we want to be sympathetic to that. We really do. And we need to be, if we're going to build a relationship, have a conversation. But the reality is, is that it's not good for them. It's not good for them because it's leading them ultimately to this place of death. And so it can't be, hey, whatever's good for you is good for you. And whatever's good for me is good for me. Because it's not good for them. And the church needs to come out and say that. And we need to be able to, to have a love for our neighbor so much so that when they're like, hey, it's good for me, that something cringes inside of us and says, yeah, but it's really not, but I'm going to love you through it. See, this is not where we get the boldness of like steamrolling. That is not the place. That is not the place where we like get bold and be like, that is not good for you because of doo-doo. Like that's, that's not the place to do that. But we, we go to them in love, build a relationship. And we share the gospel with them. And we point them to what is truly good. We point them to what is truly good. There's this verse from Colossians. Riley posted it this morning on his Facebook, and it fits so good that I stole it. <laughs> and it says this in Colossians. It talks about working with other people. It says, Walk with wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of your time. Let your speech be gracious. And seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And so that's going back, that's saying, not how I would answer it, not how I would steamroll them, but it is, is a check to say, how would the Spirit handle this situation? How would the Spirit answer this question? How would the Spirit answer this person and bring life to them instead of more condemnation and death? Because the good news is that Jesus has come to save us. And the good news is that Jesus has come to give us a new heart. A heart that's turned away from this world and turned towards the desires of the far country. Turned towards the desires of heaven. I don't know about you, but people that I encounter all the time are yearning for heaven to come down. They're yearning for heaven to come down in this earth. And some people just don't realize it, that that's what they're yearning for. But they're yearning for oppression to cease. They're yearning for equity. They're They're yearning for a place where life can be given and lived abundantly. They're looking for a place where they can be loved and accepted. They're looking for a place where they can be challenged and transformed into a better image of who they are today. And what better image to be transformed into than the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And for His Spirit to do that for us, that we would have to, not have to keep working and keep getting exhausted on the way. And so, Peter and John, they're called and they're charged not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus anymore. And the only problem is, is that the disciples have no intention of stopping. They say, Jesus answer, Peter answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God or to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. But we cannot but speak for what we have seen and heard. And that's kind of our commission. It's our commission also to testify to what we have seen and heard. Paul in Romans 10 tells us this. He says, happy are the feet who bring good news. And they ask kind of this rhetorical question. He says, how can people call on the name of the Lord and be saved if they've not heard? And how are they to hear if no one's preaching, and how are people to preach unless they are sent? And a lot of people kind of read that last line, this, this how can people preach unless they're sent, that like we need to send people to formal uh, teaching and schooling, and that we need to present people in front and say, hey, this person's a preacher now, they're now ordained. But the reality is that God has called us all to be ministers. He's called us all to be preachers. He's called us all to be priests towards one another and to the world around us. And so this sending has more to do with discipleship and meeting together and challenging one another. And again, this is why discipleship is so important. Discipleship groups are so important in this church because that is the place where people are sent, that is the place where pastors are made and people are sent. And so we come together and we learn to preach to one another and to our neighbors and to our friends. And we are sent from this community, you and I, together. We're in this together. It's not just me. It's not just the elders. It's not just Damascus Road, but it's us as a community going together where God has called us specifically in our neighborhoods, in our homes, in our workplaces. Because faith comes through hearing the word of Christ. So remember, Peter and John, they're common uneducated men. And God used them to proclaim the gospel. And guess what? People were saved. People were saved. I know you might be thinking, there's no way that God's going to use me to save somebody. That's part of the plan. Like, that's the plan, is that you would go and that God would use you to save people. And the good news is that we can look at the story and know that it happened. And we can look in this church and know that it happened. And we can look at other churches and know that it's continuing to happen. And so the review the review for this morning is kind of on the application points, is how have you experienced the gospel? How has Jesus made a real transformation in your life? What is the proof that you can put before people that is going to be undeniable because it's standing right in front of them? The second one is what is the opposition that you're facing? What is the opposition that you're facing yourself from receiving the gospel? What kingdom have you built that is very difficult to let go, that you would like to be ruler and conqueror over. Where's the opposition there? And then where is the opposition in you sharing the gospel? Maybe you're still afraid, like Peter, and that's okay to confess, and this is a safe place to confess that. But we can't stay there. We've got to invite the Holy Spirit to move us to a place of life giving, spirit breathed boldness. And so with Jesus living inside of us, breathing inside of us, how is he calling you, how is he moving you to confront whatever those opposition barriers are? And finally, what are you willing to risk for personal comfort and safety? What worth is this far country to you? Is it up there with family? Is it up there with friends? Is it up there with a person that you know that's in need? To what degree are you willing to sacrifice these things for the far country? We're gonna take a time to kind of reflect on things that were said. I know I said a lot this morning, so wherever the Spirit has kind of moved you or or confronted you to to focus your time on, we're gonna spend some time in worship. We're gonna uh, sing three songs in that time of worship. You can sit and pray. You can stand and worship um, as in a response. Uh, we are also going to take communion. Uh, communion will be set up on these two tables here. You can, uh, whenever you're ready, in that time of response in those three songs, you can get up, uh, take the bread that is uh, His body that has been broken for you, and dip it in the juice, uh, His blood that has been poured out for you, and participate in this meal that we remember the sacrifice that Christ gave for us so that we can have the hope of the gospel, that we can have the hope of this far country and that we can be filled with (coughs) power and authority to share that with others. And so let's reflect in those ways in worship and communion. And then there's a giving box in the back. If God has led you to to respond in generosity as he has been incredibly generous to us. But uh, let's pray. Dear Lord God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time that we have to come together. And God, I pray that you would take away the lie that we are uneducated and common. But God, because of you and your spirit, we are extraordinary. That we do not have this home here. God, set our eyes and our vision towards your kingdom. And God, may you destroy the kingdoms that we are trying to build in our own lives. God, may you give us boldness from your spirit. And God, may we confess and repent in ways that we have abused boldness in your name that was actually just coming out of the filth of our heart that has brought damage. And God, may you teach us the new way of speaking in boldness and in truth in your life that brings life and joy to others, and God, may you give us the words to speak when we need it, when we're talking with our friends, that our speech might be filled with wisdom and seasoned with salt, that we might know how to answer them, and that we would make the best use of our time. God, we love you, we love this community, and we love our city, and God, we pray that you would just come and transform it, that you'd come and continue to transform us. Thank you for living inside of us. In your name we pray. Amen.